long prayer this morning, um, and you know, kind of some heavy topics to to discuss. But uh, I, I guess I'll change gears just a little bit and tell you about something really exciting that I was able to participate in this past Tuesday. Uh, Luke and I. Uh, we went over to West Washington School, and uh, we were able to participate in an event called the Amazing Shake. Has anybody in here ever heard of the Amazing Shake? It's not, it's not a drink. It's not a milkshake. Uh, what it is, it is a national competition that's put on by the Ron Clark Academy out of Atlanta, Georgia. And the idea is to teach students four things uh, that aren't part of a common curriculum. So they want to emphasize manners, discipline, respect, and professional conduct. Sounds awesome, right? Some of you are going, I wish our preacher went through this. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great. So on Tuesday, there were 18 uh, community members, community leaders, and we all went over to the school, and uh, between the 18 of us, we had a conversation with every 7th and 8th grader in the school system. And the idea was this. It was just... Uh, we were supposed to have a conversation with these kids. We didn't know them. I knew a couple of them, but that was uh, the idea was just that these, these students would be able to have a conversation with a complete stranger and not have it be awkward. And they, they wanted them to learn that skill that you can, you can talk to somebody, you can have a conversation with somebody. Um, and so we had a rubric for that day, and uh, it, was just, it was a really, really fun day. The reason I bring all this up is because I was talking to a young lady, and uh, she was doing one of the things that she was taught in a conversation. She brought up something that she had heard uh, that I had said to somebody else, and she used that later in the conversation. And so that was pretty good. I, I gave her high marks for that. But what she said is, so I hear you're a pastor. What is that? What do you, what do, you do? And I thought, boy, there's about 200 people that ask that same question every single week. And so I had a good laugh about it. There was another minister there, and he laughed about it too. And later I was talking with Dan and Chris, and Chris pointed out she didn't know. She didn't know what she did. And I, and I got to thinking about that. That girl didn't know what my job was. So we live in a world now where church isn't a cultural assumption. See, it used to be when some of you were growing up, you went to church. Right? You could have limbs falling off and you were going to church. We'll stop at the hospital on the way home. We're going to church. Okay? Some of you grew up in a world where unless you were very, very sick, you're going to church. Okay? We'll get you a little bucket, sit next to you in your pew. We're going to church. Okay? Some of you grew up in a world where as long as we're in town, we're going to church. Some of you grew up in a world where uh, on Christmas and Easter, we're going to go to church. A lot of kids today grow up in a world where church, we sleep in on Sunday mornings. Why would we go to church? What do they even do there? What is a pastor? See, it's not a cultural assumption anymore. For many people today, church isn't a thought in their lives, and they don't know what happens at church. They don't know, they don't know, they don't know what a pastor does, let alone about the incredible love that God has for them. And the cross is just something that goes on a necklace. It doesn't have any significance. So the only way they're ever going to have any interest in what happens at a church is if you help them develop one. 
So invite your friends to church. Invite your friends to church. When they say no, take it in stride. Pray for them, love them, share life with them, and in three months, invite them again. And when they say no, take it in stride. And one day they'll say, you know, I've been thinking about that. I, I think maybe I'll give it a try. Or maybe they'll bring it up to you. My point is, is this. People aren't going to come to church because they're supposed to come to church. People aren't going to come to church because they're supposed to come to church because the world we live in doesn't say you're supposed to go to church. The world we live in today says you're supposed to sleep in on Sundays. You're supposed to stay in your pajamas till about noon and then you get dressed up to watch the football game. So you put on your jersey, cheer for your team, and then you put your pajamas back on at about five-ish, okay? And then you rest up from your hard day. That's what the world says you're supposed to do today. People aren't going to come to church because they're supposed to come to church. You know why people come to church? People come to church because they love someone from a church. You're not supposed to come to church anymore. But people will come to church because they love someone from a church. You be that someone from a church that they love. Okay? You be that someone from a church that they love, and that's how we'll see communities changed by Christ. All right. Uh, that's my introduction. I not have anything to do with the sermon. I just thought that was striking. A uh, little girl said, what do you do? She didn't know what a pastor does. Today our text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in it, Paul talks about the struggles that Israel had in the past and the struggles that the Corinthian church had at that time. And uh, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from those struggles. And Paul's addressing a very specific question. Uh, It's a straightforward one that we need to know the answer for personally and one that we need to know the answer for so that we can help somebody else walk through that as well. And the question is really simple. How do I resist temptation? How do I resist temptation? Uh, Let's take a look at the text, and then we'll walk through Paul's answer together. By the way, all of the texts are going to be up here on the screen for you. I preach from the New Living Translation. So if you've got your own Bible open and the words are just a little bit different, don't panic. It's just a different translation I'm using, uh, the New Living Translation. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll start in verse 1. Paul says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the Scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, and then they died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. 
If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. Let's synthesize this. Paul is addressing this simple question, how do I resist temptation? And his answer is given in three parts. Look to God. Listen to God. Trust God. You've got to look to God. You've got to listen to God. And most importantly, you have to trust God. Those are going to be the subject headings for the three points in our sermon today. Uh, so get those down. We're going to walk through them. First thing you've got to do is listen to God. Paul starts with a sermon illustration. Um, I was told this week that people like sermon illustrations, especially personal sermon illustrations. Um, Rick Hamer said I should use more and include him more as the sermon illustrations. Um, so it, 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 it helps. It makes it easier to remember, especially when it's a, a personal illustration. That's what Paul's doing here. He's using an example of how, God, uh, how God's people have struggled in the past to show the Corinthians how they can overcome temptation. The message is just as valid today as it was in first century Corinth. So Paul uses the example of the Hebrew people after the Exodus. So let's, let's get a little bit of context why there needed to be an Exodus. So for 400 years, um, the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. It was a hard life. It's a terribly hard life. They worked hard. They were slaves. And as the nation grew, their... Um, oppression grew because the, the Egyptians feared them. They said, these people are increasing. If we let them continue to grow, they are going to overtake us one day when they decide. So their, uh, as their numbers of people grew, so did the oppression that the Egyptians placed on them grow. So it was a hard life. They feared God, but they also lived in a world where the Egyptians worshipped a number of gods. Last week we talked about the idea of a monotheistic world. There's only one God. And a polytheistic world. There's lots of gods. The Egyptians were hard and fast polytheists. All right? They had a sun god named Ra. There was Amun-Ra. He was the hidden god. Mut was the mother goddess. Osiris was the god of the living. Anubis was the god of the dead. Horus was the god of vengeance. Thoth was the god of wisdom and knowledge. Sekhemet was the goddess of war. And Hapi was the god of the Nile. Just quick note on this. Um, Hapi, the god of the Nile, was depicted as a frog. And this isn't a joke. So um, when... When the plague strikes Egypt, one of the plagues was frogs everywhere, right? And so uh, if somebody stepped on a frog or accidentally killed a frog or anything like that, they could be punished. They could be put in prison or they would be subject to the wrath of Hopi. And the, the Egyptian rulers didn't want any curse to come on the land if somebody stepped on a frog, so they, they would punish you severely for that. All of a sudden, this plague of frogs isn't such a silly thing anymore, is it? You couldn't walk anywhere. So these Egyptians have gods all over the place. Those ones that I just mentioned, those are just the primary gods. In total, they had well over 2,000 gods in the Egyptian pantheon. And although the Hebrew people feared God, some of the Egyptian culture rubbed off on them. 
is bound to in 400 years. They learn some bad habits. I heard a preacher say once that the Exodus is about getting the people out of Egypt and Leviticus is about getting Egypt out of the people. So they learned some bad habits and they had to get that out of the way. So finally, after 400 years of captivity, hard, hard labor, God rescues the people from Egypt in a miraculous way. He sends Charlton Heston and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Sorry, I always get that mixed up. Uh, It's a translation error. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille sent Charlton Heston. God sent Moses. Mistake could have happened to anybody, okay? Uh, Anyway, after ten plagues, Pharaoh finally says, fine, you just just take your people and you get out of here. I'm sick of you. Of course, we know that they were ready to go. Everybody was already waiting. They had their shoes on, their bags packed. Their bellies were full, and so when Moses said go, the people left, and it was an exodus. Shortly after the people leave, Pharaoh has a change of heart. Instead of letting the people go, he decides he's going to kill them, and he orders his army to pursue them. Now, let's talk about armies here. So Sometimes when we think about armies, we think, well, maybe this was like the army of Luxembourg. Luxembourg has an army. Do you know that? They have 900 active duty and reserve troops. So this isn't the army of Luxembourg that's going after the Israelites. This is the ancient equivalent of the United States military. And Pharaoh says, I'm going to send my battleships and my fighter jets and my tanks and my cavalrymen and my marines after these Hebrew people. So the Israelites, these Hebrew people, leave and they're running and they're running and they're running and finally they're running out of space and they're trapped by the approaching Egyptian army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them and the people turn to each other and they say it would have been better to be slaves in Egypt than corpses in the wilderness but Moses told them don't be afraid just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you What a beautiful verse. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord Himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. And what God did next was make a way. He made a way. Let me get a little more specific. God defied the laws of nature to rescue His people. He left no doubt that he was responsible. He parted the Red Sea as the people just stood there and watched. And they walked across this this ocean of water on dry ground. And the same sea that allowed them safe passage swallowed the enemies of God. As the people passed through the water, they were given a new life. They were no longer slaves running from their masters. They were free. They were no longer burdened by Egypt. They were rescued by God. They were no longer second class. They were God's chosen people. And that is exactly what God has done for us. So what do you need to do? I just need you to sit there and listen. 
Sit there and listen to how God can rescue you today. When we're baptized, we go under the water. We go under that water right over there, and all of the sin, all of the sin that is constantly in our lives and constantly chasing us down like an Egyptian army, what happens to it? It's washed away. It's drowned in the heart of the sea, gone, never to be seen again. And some of you need to hear that. You came in here today, you're a couple of steps ahead of your past. I think you should drown your past in the heart of the sea today. This is the middle of the sermon. Um, but if I'm talking to you today, I want you to consider being baptized. I want you to consider drowning your past in the heart of the sea. And I want you to start thinking about it now so that way when we get to the end of the sermon, it doesn't sneak up on you and you talk yourself out of it. Okay? I want you to start visualizing coming up here and saying, Tony, I want to be baptized today. I want you to start thinking about that. I want you to... Um, uh, it, disabuse yourself of the lie that everybody's going to be looking at you and judging you and saying, yeah, that person needs to be baptized. Well, guess what? We all needed to be baptized until we were. Nobody's going to judge you, but they will stand and praise God with you. Okay? Some of you needed to hear that today. God provided a way out for his people. And God's provided a way out for his people. But that's not all they provided. Once the people got to the other side of the Red Sea, they ran into a problem fairly quickly. And I like to call this problem, how do you feed a million people when you're walking through a desert? That seems like a problem, right? That's the kind of problem you need to solve. God provided in a way that only he could. He sent food directly from heaven. Bible calls it manna. It was exactly what the people needed in order to keep going. And that's exactly what our participation in the Lord's Supper is. It is food directly from heaven. God sent his son from heaven to earth to provide for our most basic need. You're going food and water. No, forgiveness is our most basic need. God provided that for us in Jesus. And so when we take that piece of bread, we are reminded of the forgiveness that's been provided for us. And when we drink that little cup of juice, we are reminded of the cost that that forgiveness cost. God provided for us like only he could. Food from heaven for our most basic need. He provided for the Hebrew people in an extraordinary way, in extraordinary ways during the Exodus, but he provides for us in even more extraordinary ways now. So if you want to overcome the temptation, if you want to overcome the temptations that, uh, that come upon you, the ones that you've always dealt with, look to God. Look to God and what he's done for you. Remember that you're no longer a slave to whatever temptation is facing you. You don't have to run. Stop. You face it head on and you say, I'm not doing this. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in the wilderness as he was being tempted by Satan. After 40 days of fasting, Satan gave him all of these different temptations. And Jesus simply said, away from me, Satan. And that was enough. And so I don't know what you do. I don't know what works for you. But when I find temptation trying to creep its way into my brain, I just very simply say, away from me, Satan. 
And I believe that there's power in God's word. And I believe that it works. And I've seen it happen again and again. Where that temptation has stopped and it's been drowned in the heart of the sea. Remember that you're no longer a slave to sin. Remember that you don't have to be a slave to sin. Unfortunately, it's not what the Hebrews wanted. Paul goes on to say, Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's a good hopeful verse for you to put on your Instagram. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why was God so unhappy with so many of them? Let me show you. These things happened as a warning to us so that we don't crave evil things as they did or, or worship idols as some of them did. Don't do that. Uh, people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. Don't do that. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did. Don't do that. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did. Don't do that. And don't grumble as some of them did. Don't do that. Uh, why? Uh, they were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as an example for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Why was God so unhappy? Because his people stopped listening. Because his people stopped listening. This happens sometimes, especially in youth, and I still think I speak with a little bit of uh, experience on what it's like to be a youth. Don't argue with me on that. Uh, we think we've got things figured out and um, the routine is set and, and, and things are pretty easy and this scenario leads to this scenario and we know how this works. And so we stop listening to instruction. We say, I got this. We get a little bored. We get a little discontent. We say, I got it. That's what happened to the Hebrews. At first, the man was really great. It was really cool. It just appeared every morning. It's a Christmas miracle. They didn't know what Christmas was. Uh, but after a while, they started saying, manna again? Can we just have something else for once? Can I have manna again? I'm tired of manna. It tastes like vanilla wafers with no whipped cream. Manna again? Why don't we have any water? I'm thirsty. This is a desert. And they started to wonder if it might have been better to just stay in Egypt. Now, I'm going to grant them a point. Water's a valid concern. And this is a desert. Water's something you can't live without for very long. But think about what they'd seen. Think about what they'd seen. They had seen God lead them across the Red Sea on dry ground. They've seen God wipe away the Egyptians in that same water. They've seen God provide manna from heaven and water from a rock. Did they think that God couldn't do those same things again for them? By now they should understand... God's going to provide. They should have known that, but they stopped listening. Instead of listening to God, they were listening to themselves. And they were thinking about Egypt. In Egypt, we had water. In Egypt, we had food. In Egypt, in Egypt, in Egypt. And they began to ignore what God was doing now for what they were doing then. We had food. We had water. We had shelter. Instead of God's providing food, God's providing water, God's providing shelter, it's always easier to say, I want the past. For the very simple reason that we've already survived the past. We know we can make it through that. We've already survived it. If our present circumstances are difficult, we say, I don't know if I can make it through this. But I know I can survive the past because I already have. 
I wish things were just like they used to be. They weren't great, but at least I survived. At least I made it through. And here's what's interesting. Because of this attitude, because of the way that the Hebrew people were thinking, as they were physically leaving Egypt, they were mentally returning. You see what they had going on? Their bodies are physically leaving Egypt, but as they were doing that, they were mentally returning to Egypt. Let's bring that argument into our world. Let's give that a little bit of context. We've been redeemed. Uh, By the power of God, our sins have been drowned in the heart of the sea, or, or they can be. But sometimes we start thinking about Egypt. We start thinking about our old lives, but only the good parts. We love to remember all the money we made when we neglected our families, but we don't think about the hurt sound of your wife's voice or your children's voice on the other end of the phone when you say, I'm going to stay late again. We think of the laughs we shared when we were drunk, but never the hurtful things we said. We think of how empowered we felt when we were sexually immoral, but never how empty and lonely we felt and made other people feel. See, we start to think of those things, and gradually we start to make our way back to Egypt. We start to make our way back to Egypt. And here's the dangerous part. Nobody returns to Egypt in a day. Nobody, nobody gets back to Egypt in a day. It's a long trip. You ever heard the, the parable of the frog in the pot of the water? You heard that one before? What happens if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water? He has a little legs and you say, hey, 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 hey. Thanks for inviting me, but I just remembered I had some things to do at home. I can't stay. You guys have a good day. I'll come over again sometime. He's going to hop his little frog legs. (laughs) He thought I was going to say something else. He's going to hop his little frog legs out of there as quick as possible and go home. But if you turn the water on low, let him warm up while he's in there, what's going to happen? You say, boy, it's a nice hot tub you got in here. It's getting a little hot in here. It's hot. And all of a sudden, frog legs. I didn't even mean for it to be a joke. <laughs> Turns out it was. I'm funnier than I thought I was. All right. <laughs> Nobody returns to Egypt in a day. Keeps getting a little bit warmer, though. Let's apply that a few other ways. Nobody wakes up one day and decides to have an affair. Nobody wakes up one day and decides they're going to be sexually immoral. But sometimes the things we watch on TV sure heat up the water. Nobody wakes up one day and decides they're going to have a drinking problem that wrecks their family. Boy, the choices we make on a daily basis sure heat up the water. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be angry at everything and everyone and always look for the negative in every situation. Boy, Choices we make on a daily basis sure heat up the water. Nobody returns to Egypt in a day. So what do we do to prevent it? We listen to God. We said last week that as we study the Word of God, we'll become more adept at putting the love of God into action. We'll be able to learn from examples like the Exodus and issues like the church in Corinth faced. How do we resist temptation? We listen to God. Because the more we listen to God, the more we'll be able to recognize the difference between His voice and our voice. 
the more we listen to God, the more we'll be able to recognize the difference between His voice and a tempter's voice. The more familiar we are with God's Word and God's will, the more familiar we'll be with things that aren't God's Word and aren't God's will. How do we resist temptation? We listen to God. We look to God and we listen to God. There's one more thing, and this is the most important part. We have to trust God. Verse 12 says, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptation in your life is no different from what others experience, and God's faithful. He'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. We've got to be careful here. Because verse 13 is often misquoted. And people say, well, God's not going to give me more than I can handle. God's not going to give me more than I can handle. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is that God's not going to give you more than he can handle. God's not going to give you more than God can handle. You know what I can handle? Some things. Some things. I can handle uh, microwave dinners frozen pizzas. I can handle dressing myself. I can, well, sometimes. I can handle writing a sermon sometimes. You know what I can handle? Some things. You know what God can handle? Everything. Everything. It's not just that he can handle everything. It's this. It's that he upholds all things by his powerful word. He is in control of everything. The Bible doesn't say that, that we're not going to be given. We're gonna be, the Bible doesn't say that we're going to be given more than we can handle. It says that we won't be given more than God can handle. When we're tempted, he will show us a way out so that we can endure. Sometimes in our lives, we're going to face things. We're going to face situations like the Hebrews on the shore of the Red Sea. There's an impossible barrier before us and a great temptation behind us. But just like God showed the Hebrews a way out, He will show us a way out too. It may not be the way we want. Because our idea is this. If we could just, this temptation could just stop. That would be really great. This struggle would just end and I never had to worry about it anymore. That would just be really great. If I never had to struggle with this thing anymore, if this was never an issue anymore, if I never had to fight, everything would just be so much better. That's not the way God works a lot. It's often during these difficult times that we learn to truly rely on God. My mom would tell you that. She'd tell you that the years she spent praying for me non-stopped, those were the years that she grew closest to God. She'd tell you that the nights she lay awake praying that I'd come home safely and then lie awake praising God that I did come home safely, those were the years that she grew closest to God. David says in Psalm 23, you might be familiar with this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I'll fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. Can I just tell you, you don't learn that lesson without walking through some dark valleys. You don't learn that lesson without walking through some dark valleys. You may know what the text says, but you don't know what it means until you've walked through some dark valleys. And at some point in your life, 
You're going to face a situation like the Hebrews did on the shore of the Red Sea. You're going to be facing a situation where temptation just absolutely wants to devour you. And you have the means and the motive and the opportunity to give in. In that moment, I want you to look to God. I want you to listen to God. And I want you to trust God. Because you can endure. He will make a way for you that you don't have to give in to temptation. Let's pray. God, we live in a world where temptations are tailor-made for each of us, and it's hard to resist them sometimes. Some of them we can get by with for a while, and some of them consume us immediately. But all of them lead us further away from you, God. So we ask that when we face temptations, whatever temptations we face on a regular basis, we ask that you would provide a way out for us, God. That we would have the strength and the self-awareness to say this is not of God. We pray that you would recall to our minds your words so that we know if something's wrong. God, we pray that you would give us the strength uh, to, to turn away from temptation and turn towards you. And God, when we're not strong enough, would you say it for us through the power of your Spirit. We love you, God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Hey, I, I said in the middle of the sermon, you guys remember the middle of the sermon, I said that uh, some of you need to drown your sins in the heart of the sea today? It's time. So we're going to stand and sing together, and if any of you need to do that today, I'm right here.